Hey everyone, my name is Vlad Magdalene and welcome to the Great Design Lead Podcast. I am a co-founder and CEO of Webflow and right now I'm focusing on helping Webflow become uh, one of the most influential no-code companies in the space and trying to empower as many people as possible to build software. Happy to be here. I'd say that's pretty good for winging it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Emily. I... um. Uh, before before this uh, recording, I can't tell you how nervous I was. <laughs> really? Well, I believe it or not, I still get incredibly nervous before like any conversation. Um, I'm like the really? deepest introvert. Um, and I get nervous before everything, like every candidate interview. I'm probably more nervous than people are. Uh, people think that I am. Um, I mean, honestly, kind of nervous right now. So. There's a, uh, it just never goes away. Um, So I don't know, you just get more used to it and it doesn't show as much, so. I think that's true. Before before every single um, episode, I'm super nervous, no matter who it is. And um, I actually, uh, I just met, I just made a friend, um, Joe Krug, who runs FinSuite. Yep. And right before this um he sent me a message saying um hey remember being nervous is a choice you've got this that's funny I, there's actually um i have this book called as we speak uh-huh. uh, and it uh it talks about like this feeling like the best speakers in the world always talk about how it never changes like they all feel like that um, you know, those butterflies and that nervousness before. Um, and there's like a bunch of advice about it, like reframing, like, hey, you're actually um, about to bring people a lot of value and you're giving a gift to the audience. Um, and you can just make it about them instead of like about you or kind of the the feelings of uh, that, that you're experiencing. And, and that sometimes helps like reframe, like, hey, I'm just here to give something and hopefully people... Um, uh, receive it well and anyway i need to reread the book because now i don't know <laughs> what it said um, but it's a let's just let's just say it's very very normal yeah. well i feel like i should really get used to this then if you also feel the same way <laughs> yep it's uh i i wish other people told me that it's kind of normal that it doesn't go away <laughs> Because then you just don't feel bad about it, you know? <laughs> it's sort of like part of life. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah, so um, something that I, I like doing, the, the whole point of, of why I do this, is to, to really get to know you for, for who you are. Um, and uh, that's why it's two hours <laughs> that I time out. It seems excessive, but um, uh, it's, it's really, really fun. So... I, to, mm-hmm. I was going to say two hours is not nearly enough to get to know a person, but it's also, uh, you know, an hour is nowhere near to like even on a surface level to start to get to know someone more than, you know, like the, the surface stuff. So I get it. <laughs> so to to start, um, I want to talk about this picture that I found. Um, it's Uh-oh. a... <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm now even more nervous. <laughs> um, there's a a picture of a kid, 
and his backpack is like falling off of his shoulders and he's in this this kitchen and it's you at, at oh. nine years old so i was curious what was that kid like oh that is such a hard question to answer because i oscillated between like I wouldn't say different personalities, but that was shortly after we came from Russia, from the USSR. So I moved here uh, when I was nine. And that was our first kind of major house where we weren't, you know, we were renting it and um, it just felt like ours. Right? The first house mm -hmm. we moved into was kind of sponsored by the family that uh, helped us get to America. Um, and then we were in this kind of apartment building that was like a transition uh, period. And that was our first like house house, like this two story house. Uh, but I just remember, so that took about two years from when we first arrived to when we moved in there. And I remember those two years as completely um, in bouncing from one existential crisis to another of like not really knowing who I am um, in terms of, you know, first I just fully internalized that I was this you know, Russian kid fleeing um, a bad situation and arriving to this kind of uh, mysterious country that I've only heard bad things about um, mm -hmm. for a long time because, you know, Russia and the U.S. were kind of mortal enemies for a long time with the Cold War. And then only recently did I hear good things about it. And then like when I arrived, it was just heaven because everything was plentiful. Something simple that we take for granted, like bananas, I saw for the first time, uh, oh, like wow. pineapples or, um, you know, in Russia, we only had the things that grew locally. There was no such thing as, um, you know, imports, et cetera. Sort of most people had their own farms. It was mostly sustenance living, whatever you could grow, you had. Um, so being here was this realization of, holy, holy crap, this is a whole new world, right? And it's, uh, and it's almost magical. And we were, you know, extremely poor on welfare, didn't have much, but it felt like we had everything because it was, you know, kind of leaving what we left. It was night and day. But at first I, you know, I had like my own identity as this Russian kid in uh, very quickly, I sort of started to feel like a complete imposter. I didn't speak the language. There were a bunch of other kind of refugee kids that were um, also trying to learn English and then very quickly kind of picked it up because when you're immersed, um, you you pick it up and now like gain confidence. But then I got ashamed of like my Russian heritage. I sort of like was mad at my parents for giving me the kind of name that I got because it was so different. Mm -hmm. And all the other kids who were, you know, Aaron and John and Steve <laughs> or whatever. So it felt like really kind of separated. Um, and it was, and I was really kind of embarrassed about my parents because they would kind of drop drop me up at school in like this, you know, they got like the hand-me-down of hand-me-down of cars. And I saw the direct opposite from, I mean, we're in like this middle-class kind of lower middle-class neighborhood. But for some reason, I just felt so inadequate around like, hey, here we are as like refugee immigrant kids in uh, or this family that um, just doesn't have anything. And here's like normal life, right? Mm you know I want to be like them I want to um, I want to kind of fit in and um, and the thing that made it more complicated was you know our family is super religious one of the reasons that we came over just for religious persecution um, and the two cultures really clashed like where mm. my 
my parents saw it as, well, if you have American friends, they're going to corrupt you, right? Because they're not from the church or whatever. Oh, and, wow. Um, uh, American friends were kind of like, well, there's kind of like this weird kid um, and, you know, not allowed to go anywhere. And uh, so it just felt like there's like these two different worlds. Uh, and I think that picture was sort of in the middle of that, where I was still trying to kind of come to terms with learning the language. I think very quickly, I started to think in English uh, in like mm. the first six or nine months. I think that's pretty normal for somebody that's like nine or 10 years old uh, moving to a new country. Um, but it was still very, um, you know, my entire family was kind of very Russian oriented. My um, like school environment was very English oriented and um, I wasn't sure. And I had like this weird combination of feeling totally out of place in terms of like not smart because I didn't understand a lot of like terminology or cultural reference. I mean, we didn't have like TV or anything like pop culture. Uh, we didn't have genes uh, in, in Russia, it was sort of like seeing what everybody else was talking about, like TV shows or, you know, Legos, was just like totally new. And I felt totally out of place, but then in other ways felt like totally ahead because in Russia, there's only eight grades. Um, and you learn things like fractions and long division and, you know, like some versions of algebra in like second grade. Um, and you know, you like perfect, perfect cursive and, you're so far ahead um, in some uh, ways academically because, you know, in Russia, there's like no such thing as, or at least at the time, there was, everything was super regimented. There was no such thing as um, catering to each kid's preferences or sort of, it, it was just very, almost like military light, like to the point where if a kid was naturally born left-handed, that was educated out of them. Um, like you, got like smacked for, um, you know, using the wrong hand to write, et cetera. And, um, Hey, surprise, surprise. Everyone had perfect person <laughs> and was right-handed and, you know, would sit in class. And this is the only way you could raise your hand. Um, really? You know, yeah. You couldn't, um, everyone wore, uh, the same, um, like the same uniform with the same sort of USSR and Lenin kind of like insignia, um, so in, in many ways, I'm like, okay, I'm way ahead. I understand all this stuff. And in other ways, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm totally, totally out of place. And things that seemed hard for other people, like spelling, for example, were for some reason, super natural for me because Russian is very phonetic and English oh. sort of, um, has so many, and I still, to this day, I, in my brain processes, uh, words in very phonetic terms. So when I read clothes, my brain says clothes um, oh. because of the way um, or like thought I read like slowly as something <laughs> like that. So my brain like pronounced everything that way. So I, for whatever reason, I got super good at spelling um, to the point where like two years later after moving, I won like the district, uh, uh, sorry, the school spelling bee and got second place in the district because it's just so, it was like my brain was so phonetically oriented. Um, but other things like socially, I was complete, like a complete outcast and play any sports, everybody at recess played, you know, just had fun. And here I was like trying to figure out how to try to fit in. Um, and I was like this kind of awkward kid. Um, and yeah, I don't know how to describe it more. I just felt like yeah. really, really place until 
only a couple of years into high school when I started to sort of own and um, recognize my own, like the strength of my own culture and, um, you know, not being embarrassed about where I was from um, and things like that. So I think that picture in particular was kind of taken at a, at a time when, you know, I was trying to assimilate in many ways and make sense of, uh, make sense of the world. And it was a little hard because, you know, my parents, we had, I had five other siblings, so there's six of us total. My parents didn't speak any English. It was, it was sort of like fend for yourself. Um, there was no kind of, you know, my, my own dad was just trying to learn English himself to try to make ends meet and try to get off of welfare and, and make a living because, you know, there's nothing that was a, um, like none of his education transferred directly um, into mm. something that that was kind of um, officially recognized in, in the U.S. So it was a lot of figure it out on your own. So it was very, um, I think, formative in a way that just helped build my independence, uh, but also probably unnecessarily isolating in retrospect, where it could have been if somebody just came in and said, hey, this is totally normal. Um, would have made my uh, kind of pre-teenage years a lot easier and like teenagers a lot easier uh, in figuring out my own sense of like self and identity and belonging, all that stuff. And I ate a lot of bananas. I ate (laughs) bananas uh, that I kind of got sick of them for two years and couldn't come back. Um, That's a... it's probably a highlight from what, from after, right after I arrived, my parents were just, and the, in the sponsor family that we lived with, they're like, why is this kid eat so many bananas? <laughs> I feel like I kind of know that, that picture a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad it wasn't a different picture, which was, <laughs> I think a year later where it's a picture of me also kid Vlad um, standing on the top of a mountain without his shirt on posing um I wish I had that kid's confidence um I, I don't remember how that manifested <laughs> but I'm glad it's not that picture and now people are going to go looking for it so <laughs> oh my so uh, do you I'm not sure I feel like you would remember everything because it's so significant in your life um I guess what what part of Russia did you grew up in what part of the USSR? Uh, it was, if you're familiar with um, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, it's between them all the way south, close to the border of Georgia. Mm, so okay. A town called Georgievsk, which is um, roughly translated as Georgetown, like King George. Um, but it's, it's right on the border of... Um, if you've seen in the news, like Chechnya, like... Uh, sectarian sort of violence and um there's just a lot that that goes on on that border um it was after we left but it's a really really dangerous area when i ended up going back in 2007 just saw how much it was um you know really quite dangerous there where you know there's checkpoints make sure that cars aren't bombed there's multiple bombings of like um transport like trains and buses uh just because terrorist attacks uh, happened quite quite a lot there was that whole um many many years ago um there was an entire you know kidnapping of a ton of kids and there's just a lot of 
pretty sketchy, really dangerous uh, type of living there on that on that border um, that ebbs and flows that, you know, seeing how my cousins who decided to stay back live in that sort of environment was just kind of, you know, really enlightening um, to see what kind of life we would have had had we stayed back there. But it's kind of like a really quiet, uh, very, I wouldn't say super rural where we lived was quite rural. Like there's a main city um, mm-hmm. that, you know, I guess like a hundred thousand people, maybe half of that. Um, I would need to look up what the current one is. There's like no airport, the air, the closest airport is maybe two hours away. Um, but then we lived in a village outside of it that was like quasi developed, right? There's no like no paved streets and it's all kind of dirt roads and everybody has their own um, wells. Everybody has their own outhouse. Um, the the only thing that comes to your place is a gas line um, hmm. and in most cases electricity uh, at the time. But before it was all kind of before electricity, it was everyone kind of made their own, you know, you generate your own, make your own light with candles and et cetera. So it's kind of like in the, in the sense pretty uh underdeveloped i remember one of uh, our neighbors uh was had a tv uh and it's it's sort of like not neighbors but village folks had a tv where that was like a big development right that's the that's the household that has it like <laughs> together right they get the the new newfangled technology um and i remember one time my my uncle uh, was rich by like Russian standards, my dad's brother. And I remember visiting him. This was like two hours over. He lived in a much bigger city and they had um, Tom and Jerry on um, at the time VHS tapes. Oh, and when wow. I that, like, <laughs> what is this newfangled technology that you can get like, you know, funny stories told on a, <laughs> at any moment that you want. Right. Cause any, the, the previous, uh, the only way I experienced TV before was the single channel that like Russia had, uh, or I think there were two channels, the two state sponsored channels that that neighbor had on their TV. So you only see sort of like what's what's allowed by the by the state. Uh, so when I saw that there was like this exported or imported, I'm pretty sure it was bootlegged, like not bought locally, but, you know, somehow my uncle got it like this, this American content that um, just seemed, you know really awesome uh that that we're able to watch at a moment's notice that felt like magic and and when we got and i remember being so fascinated by technology that because it was so new most things were just like very analog right we had to most of the time with you know we had to walk to school we had to come back then we had to like farm for four hours mm. right you, you, there's no such thing as pesticides so you would like all the kids would walk around and pick up bugs off of like potato plants and put them in kerosene uh you would do that like for four hours a day in the you know blistering sun sometimes um and then one time my uh dad took a trip to moscow and came back with two uh digital watches they're essentially like the watches you can get at the 99 cent store here where all it shows is the hour and the uh and the minutes right and you can like press a button to set it on a timer. So you can like run the second timer. Um, and the, the little colon between the hour and the, and the, um, and the minute display blinks, right? To me, I was like, holy cow, how can something 
like this exist. And it was so magical to me, like that piece of, I want that watch, I want that technology was such a big draw that my mom made us remember like 20 Bible chapters and the entire, like with 10 Psalms and know it by heart. And when you do that, that's when you would earn it. And I remember trying to do that for like almost a year and I never actually earned it <laughs> uh, because it was just so hard to remember all this stuff. Um, but I just remember how new that felt. And then when we got to America, it was like everything was digitized. Um, I mean, this is still the early 90s. We arrived in December 91, but it was still, you know, night and day difference. Everyone had TVs. Everyone had refrigerators. Everyone had uh, air conditioning, which was like unheard of. Like, how do you cool down in air? <laughs> um, uh, the only way we had air conditioning in, in Russia was like you dig a, um, a hole in the ground where you store your like canned vegetables over, uh, you know, over the, the summer. Uh, and you go down there where it's cooler. That's it. Right. <laughs> that was AC. How did you get uh, down there? Sorry. And in, in, you said you go down into a well. And no, it's not into a well. Like you oh. literally dig kind of it's um, in Russian. It's pronounced Padval. I don't know what it's called in uh, if other. I'm sure it was common like before. It's just a common technique. Do you go underground where it's cooler? So people just dig sort of like stairs Oh. Uh, and then make like a room that's sort of reinforced that is, you know, doesn't collapse or whatever, but it's just the, it's not a vertical well. It's sort of, you know, you dig down and then sideways. Yeah. Um, like the old school, like tombs would be your catacombs or whatever. Um, so something like that. I, I've, I've seen one of those before. Uh, I, um, my, my family is, has been in the States like since like the 1700s, 1800s. And mm-hmm. there's this this cottage that um, a family member made a very, very long time ago in New England. And you walk into the cottage and there's this this square below you. And mm-hmm. they said that a long time ago when they had horses and carriages and stuff like that, um, that's where they would keep the meat was yep. just in this this cellar in the ground. Nobody can get yep. into it now, but uh, yep. that that's, that's what the, I think uh, of. <laughs> that was the technology we had back then. <laughs> so uh, I yeah I, I remember that transition coming to America was just like a entering a new world that's the only way I can describe it it's like nine day that sounds like a a very crazy two-week experience like the week before and the week after yeah, I uh, I mean, there's so many other things in between there because the week before we were kind of fleeing the country because there was sort of this um, uh, uncertainty around whether the USSR was going to let us leave. Because um, oh. as refugees, it was previously people had to kind of like cross the border, not necessarily legally and so, and make it through... Israel and other friendly countries to get to make it to the US. By the time we came, it was a little bit more established, like there was uh, agreement between uh, both embassies. But it was always everyone. On, I just remember my parents being on pins and needles, like I hope they accept our papers. I hope the the person who's looking at them is having a good day kind of thing, or we don't have to bribe them because we don't have that much money. Um, it's, I think it was still pretty precarious. And one of my most, you know, looking back, I'm just in awe that my parents were able to even work up the courage to do that. Essentially, all of our belongings, we didn't have anything 
we weren't able to afford anything like actual luggage. So I remember my mom made these, she basically took these rugs uh, that had like some sturdiness to it, right? They, they weren't like super thick, but they, um, you couldn't rip them, right? It wasn't just cloth. And she sort of sewed them into these big sort of duffel bags that had all of our stuff um, and sewed on like handles. It, it was essentially like self-made luggage out of, out of um, rugs. Um, and that was, and I think we had like six or seven of them. They're pretty big, like, you know, trying to move all of your uh, belongings in one, um, in one plane flight from one country to another. And uh, I just remember arriving to Moscow because I think we arrived to Moscow where we had like a friendly family, just a family that, that my dad knew that was essentially had to, the way I remember, it seemed pretty like we had to, I I don't want to say hide because we didn't want people to, uh, you know, um, the police to just ask questions that to kind of slow things down. But I, it, that's kind of what it felt like. We're like, oh, we're kind of like hiding out in this, you know, in this Moscow apartment, but trying to stuff all this stuff <laughs> into, um, you know, their small car making two trips to the airport. Um, and it just felt sort of um, like we're on a mission or an adventure to get out. Um, mm-hmm. And couldn't really, you know, as kids, you couldn't really ask. And I was the second oldest. So I felt um, more responsibility where my dad was like, Hey, keep your brother quiet. Um, and cause he was, you know, really, really, well, uh, two of my brothers were really young. One was a baby. One is, uh, Sergi who ended up being a Webflow co-founder was like three, uh, basically. So I had to, uh, you know, wow. kind of be the older brother. Um, and yeah, I just remember it being pretty, you know, intense. And then when we got on the plane, it was the first major, uh, airplane, I was ever on like this massive 747. And um, um, I remember first being in awe because A, there was a, a movie playing in the middle. Uh, and it was a big enough plane that you, it's one of those where you have like two or three seats on the side and four in the middle and then three seats on the other side. So it's like this huge 747 with almost like a, uh, I would say 75 inch screen of, you know, this projector that's showing movies. Um, and it was showing like Robin Hood Prince of Thieves or something. But then I, I felt like, okay, we're entering like a new, a new world or whatever. And then almost immediately I like my ears started hurting so much because like my parents had never, um, you know, my mom had never flown um, or at least at that altitude where it was, um, you know, anything more than like a smaller plane where they didn't know what to tell us, like that you can like yawn or try to chew something or swallow or whatever. Like I would tell my kids now, but it was eight or 10 hours of like intense pain that I just didn't like, I didn't know how to react to. It was just the, you know, the pressure in my ears or whatever from never having been up that high or not knowing how to like react to it or who to ask. Everything felt foreign because, you know, we're the only, um, um, it felt like, kind of there was a mix of all the, all the flight attendants were actually English speaking, not Russian speaking, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that, that was, it kind of went from odd to fear <laughs> right away. I'm like, what's going on? I can't ask anybody knows. And, you know, my little brother was crying because there was a, he's a baby experiencing the same thing. Um, and, 
you know, eventually, eventually we landed. And then right as we landed, realized my parents realized that uh, a bunch of their documents were nowhere to be found. Um, so, you know, either they got dropped in um, the airport at Moscow or somehow just, you know, got misplaced in the, um, in the plane or something. So ended up like calling sponsors, eventually worked it out to where we could get back on the plane to San Francisco, like the connecting flight to where we're going um, and landed oh there. God. And then when we got to San Francisco, realized that half of our luggage was missing. <gasps> and it was, you know, my parents are like in complete shock. Like this is our half of our earthly belongings, um, the, et cetera, et cetera. And it ended up, ended up being a blessing in disguise because a couple of weeks later, I, I forget what the airline was. Um, it's one of the big ones like Delta, et cetera. They sent a check to my parents for like each suitcase that was lost. Um, essentially like there's a, um, like hundreds of dollars per suitcase. And that was like life-changing money for them, right? It was, it was basically allowed my dad to buy our first computer uh, that he almost dreamed of. And it was like, it was like winning the lottery, honestly. <laughs> so, that, um, and it was a shock, especially for my dad. I remember this where he was just, you know, in Russia, when you lose something, even when some official comes, like somebody that's associated with the government, like a police officer comes and takes something blatantly, you don't go and complain and it like you get justice, right? It's sort of, all right, that's, that's the hand you're dealt. And here it's something that is like just purely lost. And here's a company that's like paying you for something bad happen, happening to you because they're taking some responsibility for it. You know, for my parents, it was like, I, I think the beginning of the deprogramming of uh, the last 20, 30 years of being told everywhere in society and school, et cetera, that the, this, the United States is like this evil empire that wants to destroy um you know, humanity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was, yeah, I, just so, so much uncertainty there, but also so much luck and so much um, uh, just looking back, both thankful and kind of relieved <laughs> that things didn't go worse. Um, yeah. That's, that's incredible. So I, I'm just, I'm still stuck on the, losing the papers at your connecting flight if if my if my phone dies in mm -hmm. during my connecting flight i would i would panic and and i'm just by myself i can't imagine what your parents were going through i have no idea like they didn't speak the language didn't um you know my mom describes it as like they had to try to find somebody that you know imagine going to the airport kind of speaking only russian and hoping that somebody um uh somebody eventually they found somebody who was able to call an interpreter that was having to like was able to have a conversation with them I don't remember all the details um that you know she a couple times like relayed to me um but it was enough to have some of the papers and the like the knowledge of um you know people just gave the benefit of the doubt like here's a refugee family that is basically in shock don't know what yeah. they're doing and first time in the country uh, I think there's enough kind people who who just assumed that we needed help and and helped us get to where we needed to be. Uh, eventually, it caused problems because when my when my parents got um, uh, citizenship, 
um, a lot of the things, uh, a lot of those missing papers ended up causing issues because usually when when uh, a refugee becomes a citizen uh, or a permanent resident and then a citizen, like the uh, kids automatically become citizens as well. But because a lot of the papers included things like my birth certificate um, or some of my other siblings missing papers, like some automatically became citizens. And some of us had to do like this entire process of having to prove that we were born in Russia and having to prove that there was some paper trail of, um, you know, having plane tickets and being sponsored and being part of his family and, you know, that it's not just some kind of shady way to introduce you know, a kid into the family or whatever. Um, so that that ended up being an issue later, but it was, you know, resolved over time. Before you left, um, when did, I don't know, this is a really loaded question, but when did the problem start that that caused you to eventually leave? Oof. Um, so it, it, that is that is a loaded question. It's kind of a complicated answer uh, because my parents also oscillated between things are not that bad to we need to leave to uh, things are not that bad um, to like we really need to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the the I'll spare the longest longer story, but the you can we have two hours. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll share like the medium version of the story, sort of like chronologically for okay. um, to sort of like build build the context around it. So for hundred for close to a hundred years, um, like Russia, especially the Soviet Union, had a really complicated relationship with religion. Um, mm. So even going back to this is like pre the October Revolution, before like Lenin and um, kind of the the communist regime became a uh, like the Soviet Union state. There was a kind of um, some light, I'd say, lighter persecution against any anyone that was not uh, Russian Orthodox. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, just normal religions like Protestant, um, sort of Baptist, like kind of mainline with what you'd see like a lot of churches here in America uh, was considered sort of fringe, right? So people had to, mm-hmm. um, you know, like live a little bit outside of society if they if they believed those um, kind of were part of those denominations, et cetera. But things got really, really bad after uh, Lenin came to power and especially after Stalin came to power. Um, and what happened then was the state saw religion as just a huge uh, sort of contender for power, right? So mm-hmm. if people did not see the state as like the ultimate source of authority and moral um, grounding, et cetera, they saw anything competing for that as a huge problem, right? Um, where it was a, you know, it just made it harder to control the masses <laughs> is how I kind of... the that's the story in my head for why it became kind of uh, one of the enemies of the state. And it got so bad that, you know, if you had any sort of uh, religious, you know, material or literature, et cetera, that was like a punishable offense. Uh, My dad's dad's dad. So my great grandfather, um, he, so my grandfather had, I think they had, he had nine other siblings out of the, 
14 that were born, like it was very common for a lot of, uh, you know, kids to, to die early in life or during labor, et cetera. But they had a big family. And um, my grandpa's dad was um, like during Stalin's regime, somebody had tipped off the authorities like, hey, this family is Christian. Uh, and at that point, people had to like meet in the middle of, uh, you know, the forest at four in the morning to do things like baptisms, right? Because people like fervently believed that they, you know, wanted to, like they believed in um, uh, that religion and that faith, et cetera, that they didn't feel like they couldn't uh, practice sort of the rituals and the things that, that proved, um, uh, they were like very, very devout. Uh, but when it was discovered, you know, everybody sort of, uh, practice in, in secret. Um, and when there was communal things, you had to really make sure it was in secret, make sure there were no like spies, um, in, in the mix, because if somebody reported you, that's essentially, you know, a crime against the state. Um, so my grandpa, uh, my grandfather's father, my great grandfather, um, uh, one during Stalin's regime, somebody tipped off that that he had uh, religious materials that came to their house discovered a bible in their home along with other um uh, the, uh other books and essentially like took him away and said um he's being arrested and he's going into a labor camp um they found out only 30 years later after like some reforms and there was like more transparency that he was actually shot by firing squad the next day along with other people who were rounded up um for just essentially for um, believing what they believed and having uh, a Bible in their home. So that was like that, the, the height of persecution. And then when some of these reforms happened, um, that blatant stuff, um, you know, mass scale was, uh, you know, decreased dramatically. However, there's only, you know, as you can see with how, how, um, effectively we've been able to, or non-effectively, we've been able to root out systemic racism in the States, right? Like things don't just go away. Uh, where even though the state wasn't blatantly like rounding people up and sending them to like gulags or killing them, um, it still was a, uh, it was like a socially and economically infeasible thing to uh, admit or to like openly practice, right? So people uh, practice your religion. So there was a lot of persecution. I would say like, compared to what I just described, it was like persecution light, right? If somebody finds out that you're Christian, like they could, could use that information against you. Like, Hey, I'm going to tell your boss and you're not going to be able to work again. Right. Or if your boss found out, then they could say, they could use that information to make sure that you're working much longer or whatever. Otherwise they reveal that about you. Um, and in the late, in the mid to late eighties, um, there was um, a, some kind of reoccurrence in especially the more like Siberian part of Russia, where uh, kind of way more towards the East, a lot of instances of especially Pentecostal, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Pentecostal um, uh, rituals, but they're like just more charismatic, right? Like speaking tongues and voices, et cetera. But that there were many examples where people would like openly practice and like local officials would like round people up and in some cases kill them. Um, and that, um, and that was happening like close to the breakdown of the Soviet Union, right? Where like more things were out in the open. Uh, but there was enough evidence of that, that people were able to escape 
and come to the U.S. and and um, uh, basically address Congress and say like, here's what's happening, right? It it might not be like the um, the age of old where like tens of thousands of people are being rounded up and put into prison or being killed, but there's enough examples of people being killed for practicing their um, uh, their religion, et cetera. And it's like normal religions, quote unquote, um, in um, in today's like it, it it became like super super taboo in in Russia to to practice anything other than you know um, secularism I guess uh, I don't know how to describe it so that was enough to convince um, I think I think it was Reagan or Bush senior at the time kind of that transition to open up these uh, religious persecution um, kind of refugee quota exemptions. Um, and that, uh, that was sort of like the overall context. Uh, and in my not, because we weren't part of those sort of like, what is that Eastern Russian part of that type of persecution, but it was still like society was still in that state of if somebody finds out that you're you're Christian, like you're going to get ridiculed, et cetera. So I remember in second grade, um, my uh, actually first grade, it started where there's there's almost like this clash between um you know, my parents and like the entire religious community, which like, you know, practicing more or less in secret, believe that you can't pledge your life to anything other than God. Right. And then the, the oh. it's like, you kind of have to pledge your life to the state and nothing else. And they had like symbology that represented that. Like, for example, once you cross for, in, from, um, uh, from preschool into first grade, you basically get entered into this, um, it's called like Aktibrata, which means like the October, the Octoberists, um, in referencing the October revolution, right, which means that you're in training to be like a full on, uh, you know, member of the Communist Party, and you're like pledging your, um, you know, fealty to the, the party, etc. And my parents had a, had a problem with that, right, where they just were not comfortable with like us wearing these pins that say, you know, I'm a member of this, you know, um, party or whatever. And that caused enough of a clash that people found out that my parents that like my uh, my brother and I my older brother and I happened to be in the same grade just because he had he like fell down from uh he eventually had to stay a grade back but we were in the same grade once our teacher found out then it's and we were the two best students in the class like academically speaking um but once she found out she began like making fun of us in front of the class um you know there's like she would, you know, anytime there was like a hard question, she'd be like, I'm sure these Christian kids know or something like that. Or I'm sure like, let them ask, uh, let them ask God about what the answer is or something like that. Uh, it was like ridicule more than, you know, get out of my classroom or whatever. But it was like, it was clear that she was trying to sort of shame that out of us or maybe like uh, help us see that our parents were maybe like a little potentially um, crazy or something. So it was it wasn't like a physical thing but it was like pretty emotionally abusive right where you know we felt completely other like we did not feel like part of that class um and most of it came from the teacher and then piled on from the students right like we were always just 
you know, me and my brother just eating alone after that. It wasn't, you know, there was like no community with the class. We were kind of uh, totally separated to the point where my parents decided. And, and but right before that, my, there, was, there were opportunities to escape um, and try to come to the U.S. Through, through like this Israel path. And my dad's sister did that. Um, but my dad was still like really skeptical because he's like, I have an okay job relative to everyone else here. Like we, you know, we have the ability to sort of keep living, keep doing what we're doing. Um, but it wasn't until, uh, and right at that time when my parents are skeptical uh, about coming to America, my unbeknownst to them, my grandmother, uh, my, my, my dad's mom um, filled out applications on, um, on their behalf and sent wow. them to like when she found out that this new quota was being opened for like refugee status. And she sent them into like, she heard about it from some guy at church and uh, she sent them on my parents' behalf to Moscow. Wow. Uh, and then, and had she not done that, we would have been here like 10 years later because like the, the order at which you applied really mattered because like spots were limited. And only then like a bunch of things happen in parallel where um, this sort of like bullying started at school and my parents decided like, hey, this can't, like kids can't continue this. So they just pulled us out of school. Um, and the whole, like all of third grade, we were essentially sitting at home, um, but kind of waiting for, res like waiting to figure out. Um, and then when they found out that my grandma had sort of filed on their behalf, uh, I don't even know if she like forged her signatures or not. I need to check <laughs> like, what actually happened there. Um, but then they, they were a lot more open to like, okay, this is actually isn't working for our kids. And it's just that they're two oldest kids that are in school at the time. Um, and thankfully my grandma submitted and then eventually they got sort of approval to say like, Hey, come to Moscow to interview, uh, to make sure that we can like approve your, uh, your exit, et cetera. Um, so that, you know, that whole one and a half year period where you're like, we don't feel like we can actually go to school here because every, it just feels hostile. Um, and yet parents, or there's just like not definition around like where we would go or where we would move or whether we can leave the country. Um, I remember that being both like a really uncertain time, but also kind of a fun time because ain't no school. So <laughs> we're just like, um, you know, exploring the, the village or outside of the village in the forest or whatever. So um, I just remember being kind of conflicted about that. I'm like, I don't know what's going on with my parents, but I'm glad I don't have to go to school anymore. And then I'm not being like made fun of by the teacher. Um, you know, recollections kind of hazy because I was eight, nine years old at the time. But um, I, I do remember it was like, a lot of a lot of uncertainty, but I was glad that I was removed from that situation where there was a lot of, um, you know, um, a lot of bullying, etc. And actually, thankfully, when my when my dad's boss found out that he wanted to uh, leave the country, and also found out that he was Christian, he um, he tried to do everything possible to because he had to approve. Um, he had to like sign something and he uh, like uh, I remember the way my dad told it like he held my dad hostage essentially until my mom went there and just like cried her 
heart out and made him feel so terrible about doing that. Uh, like that's the kind of control people had over people there where, you know, once somebody finds out about your religion, you sort of have like this, this hold on them. It's almost like a secret that you have to keep. And um, it's like essentially outing somebody in a different sense. Um, and once, once that's done, they become kind of like a social pariah. Um, and that's the thing we were escaping, right? It wasn't like physically dangerous uh, at the time, but it was a, not a great, you know, there wasn't freedom, right? There wasn't freedom to, to be yourself and to, um, for a family to practice what they believed, et cetera. Do you remember the, the moment when your parents told you that you were actually leaving for real and they weren't going back on that? I honestly don't. I remember like that entire year and a half of like, maybe this, maybe that certainty here, then something falls through. Then um, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's not going to happen. I, I honestly don't remember all the, like the ups and downs there, but I don't remember a specific moment where just the, the thing I remember vividly is my mom finally sewing these like rugs together to make, um, uh, to make essentially luggage. And that's when I knew it was like, okay, this is real. Like we have to start, this is where um, my, my clothes are going to go into. It's, that's when I knew it was like, we're preparing to go to Moscow and then to America. But I don't remember you... how far after, uh, how much you know time had passed after there was certainty that we were approved. Um, I just don't remember that. I mean, you were nine. Yeah. <laughs> did you um, did you leave for Moscow at night in a car? Um, no, we took uh, we took a train. It took a while. Um, so that was a, you know, when we got there, there was like that local um, family. It was just a husband and wife that had a car that picked us up and took them. Uh, took us to their um, apartment. I think we stayed there a couple nights um, and then went to the airport a couple days later. Um, when when you left your, your home that you grew up in, um, did you mm -hmm. think that you would ever come back? Honestly, at the time, it felt like leaving for the last time. Um, it And I... I remember not having any desire to go back, really? uh, especially in that first moment when I stepped onto the airplane, like it was, you know, what is this? It just felt a futuristic, <laughs> B, huge, like completely, you know, otherworldly. Uh, but I just knew that we're just heading somewhere better. Um, and I don't think I worked up the desire to even consider going back until, you know, decade plus later and that was more for curiosity and some nostalgia uh, but it was just kind of I think coincidental also it, I think it was more my what because I was recently married when we went back in 2007 it was more my wife's desire to go back because uh, mm. she grew up a little uh, further north where it's um, uh, a lot more stable but it's close enough that you can kind of take a train 
in like five or six hours from one city to another, um, from where I grew up to where, where she was born. And um, that was mostly like her pull to take us back there. Um, and even after that trip, I was like, I don't know if I ever want to go back there again. Um, after seeing sort of what it was in 2007. Now we're kind of considering, cause I, you know, I have two daughters. Uh, my wife's also Russian. They're, uh, you know, my kids are 10 and 12, about to be 11 and 13. And we have them taking Russian lessons and like considering, okay, we need to take them to Russia just to experience <laughs> some of like how we grew up, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of absorb some of the culture, but we're not sure yet if that would be like, St. Petersburg, which <laughs> is, you know, I would say uh, touristy Russia and uh, kind of Europe light um, or actual Russia <laughs> where we grew up, which is totally different. So don't know yet. I've got to say, um, uh, kind of attempting to speak from like your daughter's perspective, um, I, I'm dating a Serbian and mm-hmm. um, I remember him telling me about what it was like and all of these stories and stuff like that and it wasn't until I actually went to Belgrade that I was like mm-hmm. wow like I think I kind of get this a little bit <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um I I actually thought I got it until I went back and everything seemed you know I was a little kid and just even standing in the street which I remember being like huge <laughs> and that and it's actually like this tiny little you know, dirt road with like tiny houses on either side. And when I was a kid, I was like looking up at our house and like, oh, holy cow, this is a skyscraper. And and visiting it again, it was just like a completely different experience. So even for me going back, it was like a, a trip kind of figuring out, wow, this is this is how I grew up. Um, I think for my kids that it, it probably will be, you know, some sense of <laughs> comparison but even now I think some things have caught up there the same house that where we lived um has plumbing now and like a <laughs> toilet and not just an outhouse right it has like um you know now it's over the last whatever 30 years of modernized enough that there's running water not just a well um so it's not the same even going back now is not the same type of experience as kind of where we grew up there's now you know, supermarkets where you can get food that's imported from anywhere now that the the USSR kind of like fell apart and there's a lot more commerce, et cetera. So um, part of it is ancient history. Um, and and part of it is also still available for everyone to, to see and experience. When, when you did go back and you, you saw your house um, that you grew up in, what was, what was that? What was that feeling like it like that first feeling of surprise and shock of this is what i remember because i remember it being um have you ever seen zoolander oh i haven't <laughs> okay there's like this and i i i don't know if i've seen all of zoolander either but there's like this meme where he looks at this uh model of a house and it's like small <laughs> And somebody says, this is going to be your house. And he's like, what is this? Is a house for ants? Kind of <laughs> uh, the house appeared in my memories, right? Um, sorry, appeared in real life compared to my memories, where my memories are like, okay, there's like this big 
big house that, you know, um, and the only way houses get built there is like you go little by little and you collect materials and you sort of like build it yourself. Um, and it's all sort of kind of cluched together, not really uh, planned ahead of time. Um, so, and I remember somewhat not vividly how it was a smaller house that then my dad, I remember like making, adding additions to it. Um, and by additions, I mean like, here's a house that can be a dedicated where we can have a bathtub uh, versus just a, a sleeping area and, and, and a kitchen. Um, so when I was there, it was just still sort of trying to orient around, is this actually the same, the same thing that I, that I remember from my childhood? Um, and honestly, it was just kind of, you know, pretty surreal. Um, and there's so many, so many stories from that house because it almost burned down once because my, you know, my sister was playing with matches and set like the hamper on fire and like half the house burned down and there's no like firefighters. You basically had to get water from the well and try to rescue. And thankfully it wasn't made of wood. There's a lot of like brick. Um, uh, and then I remember my, uh, my mom was making this, you could get it was kind of a delicacy there. You could get condensed milk and you could cook it for like six hours. And you kind of make this sort of dulce de leche type of um, like cooked condensed milk, like sweet stuff. And then she let it boil over for too long and it exploded. And when it exploded, like it went all over the ceiling, right? And it sort of left marks that are hard to, didn't have things like paint. So uh, it just left those marks. I remember going back and I'm like, hey, here's sort of signs of this fire that I remember like running to my grandma's house at full speed trying to tell, cause my mom was like at my grandmother's like backyard slash farm. Um, uh, and I remember running there telling her like the house is on fire um, and coming back and actually seeing it like burnt down basically. And all of our clothes like laid out charred in front um, uh, of the house. So I like, vividly remember that, that moment and my, cousin who was like a little older I think he was like 14 breaking down uh you know the glass to like throw water in, into the house that he was like desperately trying to get from the well etc so and then I saw some charring on the ceiling I'm like okay now I remember like vividly remember this moment or going into the kitchen which had like the original really cheap linoleum that we had left with that was like super curled at this point um and you know looking up at the ceiling and you see these like stains from that explosion <laughs> and it, you know like flashing back to that <laughs> moment where my mom was like freaked out is like the house exploding um so just little things like that um and it just had this weird smell of gasoline for some reason like I still don't know how to explain that I think it's just something that my um uh, it, it was my my mom's sister that ended up living there um, and they still live there to this day and it I don't know what it was but it just like had this visceral bad smell of just like okay I'm in the presence of like toxic fumes somehow <laughs> um, so we didn't spend a bunch of time there I think we only stayed two nights um, it, yeah I don't know I don't remember anything other than that just just feeling like somewhat disconnected from it like is this the real thing while also simultaneously feeling really connected to it because I remember those those moments where you know those things actually happened that left this mark um that still is showing evidence of um you know that kind of trauma that happened in the past
I, I was curious about what, what happened to the house after you left, because I remember hearing that you weren't able to sell it. You had to leave very quickly. It, there, there was no such, I don't think there was a concept of selling in Russia because like A, in, in where we lived, because A, nobody really had like money that much, right? The money that you got, there's so many devaluations with, um, basically what would happen is the, the government would change and you see this happen in quite a bit of other countries, right? Like Argentina, Brazil, et cetera. Um, where there was so much instability with um, Soviet currency that there were, it would not be a surprise for the government to say, hey, in two days, we're announcing the change in currency valuation. There's going to be new banknotes. So you have two days to come exchange a maximum amount of like cash you have uh, for like this new thing. And, you know, there are multiple times that like, for example, my grandpa would hoard cash in his mattress, right? And then like a year later, my parents would, um, or like they would discover that, hey, he has all this money saved that is now worthless because he missed the window on um, like that conversion. Even if he didn't miss the window, he could only be able to convert some of it. So there was no concept, there was not this concept of like having faith in the ability to save money over time. It was essentially, you get some cash, you got to use it. Um, and Plus, most people didn't get much of it so that there was a a lot of you rely on yourself, right? The food mostly comes from like the, the food that you grow. Um, you know, we had chickens at one point we had a cow that didn't last that long just because it got sick. We didn't know how to take care of it. So we had to like sell it uh, for much less than what my dad bought it for. Um, but it was it was like that kind of thing that when we were leaving, I think the I think what happened was um, they virtually sold it to my aunt uh in the sense that um when you get money you like pay us back sort of thing but it, i don't think that ever manifested right because you never get to that place where you have that much money um and uh, essentially my aunt had well still has just 13 kids uh that survived and each of them have you know um because it was a very, it's part of the religion, right? Like it's, you know, birth control is not allowed mm. and you, um, uh, you know, the more like disciples you make <laughs> into the world, the better. So like, that was the philosophy. Um, and that's such a big family that I think my parents were like, oh, it's the, the most obvious. We can't, like, there's nobody to sell the house to. There's no market, right? Um, and it's such a small village that nobody has money. So might as well, kind of I think effectively it was kind of leaving it to them to maybe hopefully try to sell it but it was pretty clear after we got to America that like the the means that we had even on welfare even on like the um odd and end jobs that my dad was trying to do initially was already much more than they'll ever have right so I I think I need to confirm this but I'm pretty sure my parents just ended up like never getting anything for that um um for the house and it, in fact it was a inverse like they kept sending more money to russia uh to help support them so it was a yeah i don't even know like there's no concept of like zillow at the time or real estate <laughs> it was sort of all bartering and person to person everybody built their own homes there was no concept of like deeds and um you know owning land per se it was like it was just humans surviving in like the small village. I don't know how to describe it. What is 
a family dynamic that has 13 children? Oof. I, you know, there's a lot of structure, honestly. You know, oh. they all, from what I remember, they were very strict, like super, super strict. I mean, my, my parents are very strict too, but not that strict. Like they were all to forced to sing songs and know how to, um, you know, sing at church. They were all forced to play one or two musical instruments. Um, so they were like this, um, like very devout, very like forced talented family and a very kind of regimented discipline, right? Uh, like their dad was kind of known as, um, you know, there's like this, I think it's in the Bible, like you spare, you, you spare the rod, you spoil the child, that kind of thing. Oh, like I've he, heard that. You took that to the nth degree, right? Where they, there was definitely corporal punishment all across Russia, just like a normal, like spanking and things like that was, was really normal. But he would like, take like a tree branch, shave off the, um, you know, all the surroundings so that it's like as thin as possible and like put salt on it. Like this dude was insane. Like that was, <laughs> that was seen as a, um, you know, you're like a devout great parent um, because you are, you're like a strong disciplinarian. And that leads to like very conforming children uh, mm. um up until and and there's really no you know I, a lot of times you like here I would expect kids to rebel and and sort of uh, do the opposite of what their parents wanted I don't know in in all 13 of those cases I, I don't know a single case where that was the case they were just like very kind of straight and narrow but um uh yeah I think they I don't know what else to say about that family I just remember um and, and I grew up with all of them right like they were my best friends and we did everything together um but I I really was genuinely shocked when they decided not to come to America um and really? yeah I mean that was a genuinely shocked later when I learned that it was by choice that they didn't come um and the main uh the main sort of rationale for them was um again kind of religious like uh, they just heard America is where kids get corrupted and there's drugs and um you know people there's no like prayers going away in schools and it's all secular and um you know they're just scared about that that dynamic um and i don't know now in retrospect i find that kind of sad in the sense that like a lot of those families just have a much harder life now because of their parents choice to to stay there were you angry about that? Um, honestly, when I found out, I was like young enough that it was sort of more curiosity driven shock as in, wow, I can't believe that versus, you know, and enough time had passed that, you know, as a kid, I sort of like got more and more detached from, um, you know, remembering spending time with those cousins, et cetera, that even, you know, to a degree, I'm a little bit ashamed to say that I didn't care that much. It was sort of mm. just curiosity. Like, I can't believe that they decided not to come here. There's bananas here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, and I'm sure they describe it differently. Like, I'm sure they really enjoy their life and just have, um, feel like the right choice was made, but 
you know, um, I don't want to speak on their behalf. What do you wish that they knew? Is there anything? Not really. I think the, I think they, what they, what they know, they know now that yeah. there's just a lot more opportunity here. Right. And, um, and it's much harder to make that decision now because now it's like those, those refugee laws are not the same. Um, and it would probably take 10, 15 years, if ever, to try to make it here. So, I mean, I just hope that they're not feeling that regret because like, what's the point of that, right? Yeah. You can't go back in time. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah. I always tell myself, uh, uh, I, I try not to tell myself if I did X, then mm -hmm. my life would be Y. Uh, and it's yeah. usually because um, uh, that person doesn't exist anymore. And that really gets it out of my system of uh, it's totally unfair to do yeah, that to her totally. because mm -hmm. what can she do? Nothing. She made the, the <laughs> best decision she knew at the time. Uh, and I, you know, I try to do the same thing. Doesn't always work. Uh, yeah. Sometimes your brain does go to, you know, what if. Um, but I think that's the ultimate you know, when you get really content is when you're so comfortable with um, giving yourself permission for past decisions, past, you know, situations, etc. So, yeah, it's only the future. When you uh, got off the, the plane, um, uh, obviously, the, the first getting off the plane was was panic <laughs> because of the papers. But I, no, I'm not going to assume, actually. Um, I don't remember the... on my own behalf. It was just my parents. Um, oh. kind of recollection. I was just oblivious to what was going on. I'm just like following the crowd <laughs> and seeing, you... them, seeing them kind of freaking out. So, What was the first thing that you noticed when, when you landed? Um, honestly, I don't remember what I noticed in New York because it was all inside and it's mm. all like in these kind of closed quarters going from desk to desk and just a lot of people. And it was very overwhelming. The first thing I actually remember vividly um, is when we already landed in San Francisco and we were driving to Sacramento. Like I think uh, some, I don't remember who it was, but there was um, I think two cars that came from Sacramento to pick us up at the San Francisco airport. And um I remember there like actually seeing other airplanes out of like the airport window. I was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> in mind, this was like the, what's the huge, the Hindenburg, right? Uh, <laughs> one thing that everybody knows about that is like this huge thing flying around the earth or whatever. And I look around and there's like airplane, airplane, airplane. And um, it just, it just feels like you've arrived at some places that's like even more magical than I thought uh, what it was or like even more different um, or more advanced. So that's the one thing I remember. And then everything else is a blur until the, the sort of banana overload. Um, <laughs> that, was already, that was already like kind of settled in. We got, you know, a place to crash in like this, uh, you know, family of eight arriving into this three bedroom house for this sponsor family um, and, even though in retrospect, it, it was like really cramped, you know, for us, it felt like kind of arriving in a first rate hotel. 
<laughs> because it's like America. Um, and there was, you know, it wasn't hot at night when you're trying to fall asleep because there's air conditioning. And um, yeah, I don't, so that's the thing I just really remember, like seeing a bunch of airplanes and just feeling, wow, <laughs> am I on Mars or something like that? Um, by the way, I realize now we're like, so like more than an hour into the conversation, uh, if people like tuned in to hear about design, they're like, what's going on here? If, <laughs> if well, anybody has, <laughs> if anybody's that. listened to any other episode, uh, this is a hundred percent what they signed yeah. up for. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad then I'm not, then I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> um, so you get to this house with uh, not your sponsor family, but a family that was that was keeping you for a couple days. Um, this was already right? wasn't like the main. Um, this was some, we're somehow related, I think, to like second cousins to my dad who had come a couple years late uh, earlier. Um, and they worked with a sponsor family that helped like finance some things. Um, but it was already like a relative's place. Mm. Uh, and then they were helping us find our own rental. And then I think we moved out a couple weeks later um, into like a rental home. Um, sometimes when, when you go to a new place, especially something that's so different, um, when you wake up in the morning, it's weird <laughs> yep. you like don't realize where you are mm -hmm. what I don't even know if you remember this but what was your first morning in the U.S. like I honestly don't remember um it was some combination of just like feeling new 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 and everything's overwhelming uh to you know a sense of comfort and safety and excess like mm. wow there's you know, you go to this family, I don't know if this is the first day or the first morning, but they had, you know, a kitchen with a bunch of like they had cookies, and <laughs> all this stuff that was just readily available. And of course, bananas. Um, <laughs> they just felt like the land of plenty, if not excess. Um, like, how is this? How's this real life, right? There's candy, there's cookies, there's I can go into the fridge and get like, uh, you know, bologna at the time was just <laughs> in my mind, um, uh, you know, and it tasted so good to me that you just like take and white sliced bread was I've never seen sliced bread before. You know, you really? get like baked uh, kind of loaves. Um, they either make yourself or kind of go pick up from the bakery in, in Russia, but you can slice the bread yourself. And it's all kind of messy or you're like you, you just tear, tear. When we got to America, I'm like, everything is so regimented here. Like this slice is exactly the size of this slice. <laughs> and the bread is so white. I've never seen white bread. You know, usually you have, um, I, I just, I don't know what causes this. Maybe we just didn't have, because um, usually bread, if you just bake it with flour, it's like a little like tan or whatever. That's like normal yeah. bread. I'm like, how is this like perfectly white? This is like purity. <laughs> <laughs> and um like all the bad stuff was removed it's like drinking clear water you know that's kind of how I felt um and you know mayonnaise was new for me so you just like add mayo and like bologna and that was like heaven um and I even remember like cheese was pretty new because we 
didn't really have the concept of cheese in in Russia because you had to like you had to either make it or you had to be like in a big city to go like buy it or whatever you had you had um you certainly could make certain types of cheese like we got fresh milk right you had to either go milk the cow or go pick it up from somebody who had a cow uh so it wasn't pasteurized and like if it goes bad you get um or you could make things like buttermilk or you could get certain parts of like curdling or whatever but we didn't have like sliced cheese and we didn't have like a block of cheese that you could like slice or whatever so i remember when i discovered sliced cheese in this first couple of weeks and oh by the way the concept of a microwave completely blew my mind we had really? nothing yeah we had nothing even remotely like that in russia right um where you could a almost nothing ran in electricity um we didn't have you know a tv we didn't have everything had to be warmed up through gas stove uh etc uh so the concept of a microwave where you can take a slice of like this pristine white bread that is always whatever half an inch uh, <laughs> or exactly a centimeter which my brain was still on metric at the time um <laughs> and then put a slice of cheese on it without meat put it in the microwave melt it so that it just like melts into the uh into the bread and just eat that that just became like the you know the three michelin star type of experience <laughs> um and actually persisted for a while i remember even in the house that my parents live in now which they didn't move into until i was like a freshman in high school uh i remember doing that with like set up four slices of cheese four slices of bread four slices of cheese put it in the microwave um and like lunch is ready like that's the, that's <laughs> the um and yeah, that's sort of what that felt like. It's like a whole new, whole new world to discover. Um, not the most healthy diet, by the way. If I don't know, if I were uh, accepting um, somebody who was part of my religion into mm -hmm. my home uh, mm -hmm. because of everything they've been through, like if I feel like I would want to like take them to all these places i want to like get them all of these things to experience did mm -hmm. was were they doing that with you there was there was some of that yeah for sure like they would um you know i remember going to san francisco several months later like they took us to um just downtown sacramento just showed us showed us around um i kind of vividly remember one of the um sponsor like the the dad of like this family that we're staying with later after we moved to our own place like teaching my dad how to drive uh, oh. in, in the u.s because it was like just so i remember going on the freeway the first time i was sitting in the back and i was terrified because my dad was terrified because he's <laughs> never seen cars go that fast right like we really? uh, at some point did have a car in russia but it was like one of those you know made um there's basically the only cars you had in Russia were like cars made by the state and they literally had like numbers like the one the two the three the four the five uh mm -hmm. and they're all kind of like cookie cutter um and you know they're always breaking down etc and you had like these dirt roads with, without asphalt so you're always kind of like going slow um and I just remember my dad getting on the freeway and just being terrified I'm like why am I here <laughs> how to drive. um I even remember the exit that he was taking because we constantly have to take on that exit. 
um, whenever we leave my parents' house, like during Christmas or whatever. And I flash back to that moment of like my dad going 25 on this on-ramp with cars going by him at like 70 miles an hour uh, and him thinking that he's about to die. And by the way, that car, it was like a Plymouth, I forget exactly the the model, but it was a five five person car and we had a family of eight. And we would get the entire family in there. My older brother would literally be in the trunk. My younger brother, uh, who was like three at the time, would literally be in, in the front seat under my mom's skirt, uh, like going to church, like hiding in the, uh, or just like by her feet. Not, um, yeah. Uh, and like five of us in the back, like squeezed together. <laughs> totally illegal. I mean, this was kind of <laughs> pre, uh, pre um, car seat uh, laws and things like that for kids where, you know, you could still, um, I remember that was like, some some of the refugee families had like the station wagons where you could sit in the back and face backwards and nobody was ever buckled up like that was just the um it was it was almost kind of like not normal when I started meeting more American friends who were like why is everyone buckling up like why <laughs> why are our parents not freaking out about that um and there were actually other cultural norms that were just like completely foreign to my parents that ended up being problematic for us like we didn't brush our teeth in, uh, in Russia. Like, I don't even remember what the, what the, like the norm was. There was no such thing as toothpaste. Um, a, we didn't eat that much sugar. It was, everything mm. was like grown. And I think just naturally there weren't that many, you know, causes of cavities or whatever. So the first couple of years in the U S it was, you know, we hadn't built those habits and our parents were like, weren't hounding us to, uh, to do that. I remember like, every one of my siblings, myself included, was like cavity overload. Really? Uh, as we were just like, so not used to this new diet. And, um, you know, so, so much in terms of processed food, etc. That um, I just remember like that big adjustment of like learning how to do something as normal as brushing your teeth every day. Um, and, and only because it just caused so much pain not to. <laughs> Uh, and not even, and, you know, and, and have our parents not know that that's a part of sort of parenting, right? And, and they, by the way, to their credit, they just were going through so much change, right? They don't yeah. speak the language, et cetera. And like culturally, it's just a huge shock when you, the way that you discipline, for example, through what feels normal, where you grew up, even in like secular society, things like spanking, right? For discipline. Yeah is now you hear, you know, you, um, you arrive to Russia and the first, like, first thing that the pastor at the local church that is like accepting refugees says is kids are getting, uh, are catching wind that they can call child protective services, right. And report their parents who don't know how to, um, you know, explain themselves in, you know, English, et cetera. And they essentially like, Hey, be careful kind of thing where my parents are just completely freaked out and don't want to get kicked out of the country or get deported or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and for them, it was like a, just a massive culture shock, right? A don't speak the language, be completely different norms and um, uh, kind of parenting principles and uh, trying to make a living right when they don't know the language and don't, don't have any like professional skills per se. Um, I, you know, I'm still in awe that they took that kind of risk um, and 
brought us over. And, and they were, you know, they were both 33 at the time with six kids, right? That's six years younger than I'm, I am right now. I can't even imagine moving to a different state uh, <laughs> and, and like the disruption that that would cause. And uh, they picked up their entire life and just moved to what felt just a couple of years ago, like enemy territory. Um, and that just takes a lot of courage. So. I, I, do you ever think about like how that was even possible? Like how that even happened? Honestly, every time I think about it, I just like, I articulate, it just reminds me how much luck and other people's actions are such a huge um, part of my, you know, journey and story that it makes it so much harder to claim, like, here's what I did to, to make it, quote unquote. Mm. Uh, so every time I think about like the sacrifices that other people made or the decisions that, um, you know, selflessly people uh, took on to, you know, accept our family, fund our flight over here um, and, you know, take pretty big financial risks for no return, essentially. Um, I'm just, sometimes I think like we're kind of in a simulation that things <laughs> out uh, the, the way that they did um, because so many things could have gone in different directions, right? So many things had, had to go um, the way that they did for, for us to end up here. So I'm, I'm guessing for, for every one of you, there are probably a, a multitude of situations where at this point it didn't work out or at this point it totally. fell through. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Do you ever uh, think about many that? Times that thing, you know, fell through for my family too, but on the net, uh, we're just incredibly lucky. Um, and incredibly fortunate because even you know that example I gave where my grandma uh, sent this she she was lucky enough to hear about this refugee sort of filing opportunity for like filing for asylum um, the fact that she even heard those details through church the night before the um, sort of the application um, applications were open for submission and she heard it from a guy who both had the application papers and was flying to Moscow the next morning. So she was able to fill them out and take uh, take the papers with him and literally hand it into the embassy um, on our behalf. And then she also got a copy of the papers um, for her sister. Uh, like her sister was much younger. So my like technically she's my great aunt, my grandma's sister, but she was so much younger that her kids were my age at the time. They were oh, kind of okay. Like, but technically, they're like my aunts and uncles. But she gave her, like, she didn't know enough of the information on her sister's behalf that she just gave him the papers like, hey, fill these out and mail them. They mailed them the next day and they arrived four days later, I believe, in Moscow at the embassy. They didn't come to America until seven years later. Um, just because of that difference between where they got in line. Um, so like how how do you even explain that right yeah <laughs> if she just decided on a whim that and i don't think she felt that consequence at the time uh she just maybe uh 
like felt some urgency around that. Like, hey, we have to like file these, but I don't think she felt the urgency of I have to send them with this person to hand them in in person or whatever. She just saw that as like, a, hey, if you're going, like uh, I can have them ready by tomorrow. Uh, but I think had she known the uh, sort of importance of that, she probably would have really rushed to try to get her sister to do it too. Um, or had she like in that moment, just didn't find out that the guy was going there the next day and just mailed everything in, life would have been totally different, right? <laughs> might not even, uh, um, I mean, definitely wouldn't be sitting here today, but might not even be in the country. So who knows? There's just so many, so many of these like forks in the road that um, are just uh, some version of serendipity and luck and privilege and being at the right place at the right time and having the right people uh, help you along, et cetera. That sounds extremely overwhelming. I honestly think it would be as an adult. Like if I was, mm -hmm. if I'm the, the way that I imagine my, my parents going through it at, you know, when I was their age and I, um, I also had two young kids at the time, right? Thinking through that kind of life change um, would have been overwhelming, but I think me as an observer, as a kid at that time, I was kind of going with the flow more or less. Like it wasn't, I don't remember it being extremely stressful outside of, you know, felt like my ears are gonna explode on the plane or then later when I was already in junior high, kind of having this, you know, existential crisis of like being ashamed of my name and my culture and not wanting anyone to, uh, to know that I was Russian. And that, that was more, you know, teenage angst in a <laughs> way, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't overwhelming. Like I think it, it was for my parents to make that kind of life decision. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't even know how, like my, my wife has probably even more um, kind of random story in her family because her mom, like they, they left the country earlier when there wasn't like this clear direct from Russia to the US type of path. So they went through, I think Italy and Austria, they had to stay in, in those countries uh, for a month or two, like kind of waiting on approval from the US. And then the way her mom tells it, there was a moment and they didn't know where they were going. Like they hadn't like made that. They just knew that they were fleeing Russia and like whoever takes them. Great. Um, and I, I just remember the, the way that she describes somehow. I don't remember exactly where it, it was like some train station where a work like a caseworker that was helping with a bunch of refugees was like sort of standing the way I imagine it, the way she described it, like a, a clipboard kind of getting information from the kind of the adults in the family uh, of like, where are you going? She gave her a choice, Australia or the United States, right? And she just, the way she describes it, she's like, I remember all these horror stories about the US being evil, et cetera. And Australia was this new, you know, kind of possibility or whatever. Like I hadn't heard much about it, but um, like it, seemed like a non-negative option but and then she the way she describes it, like but just god called me um and she felt it in her heart that she needs to say america or, or and like she quickly said that um and you know that's like a 
almost a gut decision, right? <laughs> and it, yeah. was, it wasn't like really, really planned ahead of time where you're like, I know exactly where I'm going. They just like wanted a better life. Um, and had she made a different call, you know, I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have <laughs> had my kids. Um, and that's just really, you know, anytime you go down that line of thinking though, like if it wasn't, you know, your entire lineage, right? If it wasn't like my particular parents that had met uh, and fell in love, it wasn't their parents that specifically, um, just like that, the odds of us being alive and being who we are, <laughs> uh, both both genetically and, you know, in life experience, it's just so, you know, infinitesimally small. Um, <laughs> that, like, so many things had to go the way that they went for, for us to be having this conversation right now. Right. So, um, yeah, sometimes I like, I don't know how much to go down that rabbit hole because <laughs> that butterfly effect. Right. Um, yeah. you know, one tiny thing here can start like a world war three somewhere else. <laughs> um, not to take it in a dark direction, but. Um, someone said something to me once, uh, and, I'm wondering if you ever felt the same way. Um, uh, I was in my junior year, senior year, and I decided I wanted to go to school to study graphic design. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in English class next to this one girl uh, who was a first generation. Um, and I think she was from Iran or mm -hmm. a country very close to there. And um, she asked me, said, Emily, what are you going to go do for school? I said, graphic design. And she said, uh, she looked at me and she was really confused and she was like but you have all of these things and and you have all of these chances and you could be a doctor you could be this and mm. you choose to do that kind of in the realm of you have so much more opportunity and, and so many people have given you so much mm -hmm. and and you decide to do this mm -hmm. like like kind of how how dare you kind of thing. Yeah. I I honestly, I empathize with that perspective because growing up with immigrant parents, there's like this, you know, once you get to experience scarcity um, and, and I get where my, my parents get it from, right? Like not only do they, um, even though they had a better life, relatively speaking than my grandparents, uh, right? Like my, uh, my mom's, dad he was in the blockade of uh leningrad right where the nazis surrounded the city and like choked it off from any supplies so they were like you know eating shoes because it has protein because it came you know came from cows or whatever because they were so desperate desperate right like it was such a um you know situation of scarcity that my grandpa never got over that right when he got to america finally like every single item that he found that could have any potential value was like hoarded in his room, right? We had to mm -hmm. like, in a heartbreaking way, get him, you know, while he like went to church or something, like clean out his entire room mm -hmm. and like throw, like it was essentially trash. Um, and for him, it was safety, right? For him, mm -hmm. it was, this is, what if this happens again, right? Um, so I think the, when people, um, experience that kind of um, scarcity, right? And they see the kind of opportunity that they associate with, you know, if you become a doctor or a lawyer, like that is, that is not a, you get prestige and you get money and you get, 
uh, you know, recognition, that, in my opinion, is like a direct, like visceral parental reaction to you're going to stay alive. Like mm. you more guaranteed that you're not going to face the type of like, um, you know, the type of things that we had to go through or we had to like learn about our, you know, us going through where we're from or whatever. Uh, so I totally get when, um, even, even though the tactics are really emotionally, um, sometimes I would say on the line of uh, kind of manipulative, Mm. Uh, you know, where there's, you know, you know, all these memes where people kind of, uh, force their kids to like, try to be lawyers or doctors or whatever. <laughs> immigrant parents. Uh, I get where it comes from, right? Like it's a, um, yeah. And, and it's just like such a different, um, experience when you, you know, you growing up here, you just, there's more, it's like the, the land of opportunity and the land of point, like kind of go where your heart leads you. That's a different, that's a new experience for a lot of people. Um, and it's a, um, I understand that like, even from a non-judgmental lens, like, you know, when she told you that, I, I don't think she was judging you at all. It was just like mm -hmm. a and not understanding, like, why would you go towards this path that has like more uncertainty uh, than something that has like more financial certainty in the future. Um, and I think that's what probably she got from her parents and uh, et cetera. So yeah, I wish everyone in the world was able to experience what we experience here in terms of being able to think, okay, what am I actually fulfilled by? What is interesting? What brings value to others? What can I explore? Honestly, I would maybe pessimistically guess that 95% of the world does not have that opportunity as much as we have here, um, where there's a much more limited options to how people think about, um, you know, surviving and financing their, their life and their livelihood um, and ensuring that their, their kids can not only survive but thrive so it's a um I, I think we need a lot more reminders of what we actually have uh you know here in the states or like in the tech world where it is sometimes easy to see um or easy to forget uh how different and how much more privileged we are compared to the rest of the world or the majority of the world um so yeah. And even myself coming from like those um, kind of a, uh, a much more different background, it's so easy to forget how, how much worse it was. Right. And kind of lose, uh, lose perspective and be grateful uh, for, for the things that are and that exist. Um, you just constantly have to like reground yourself and remind yourself that um Yeah, just to be grateful and to appreciate what you have. I grew up in a, um, uh, a suburban town in uh, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and I thought Don't that <laughs> what Scranton? <laughs> I, <laughs> I was in uh, Orfield, Pennsylvania, uh, okay. which is sounds, like that sounds pretty suburban, <laughs> Pennsylvania. <laughs> 
it was a it's an hour north of, of Philly. And mm-hmm. um uh that's that's where I grew up. And and the house that I had, I, I thought that it was it was normal. I thought that everything that I had um was normal. I thought everything that I was given that everybody else had. And then mm-hmm. I went to college and I started meeting these kids. And when people would talk about their homes and stuff like that, I just imagined mine for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um and then I went to go visit my friends' homes and it was very different. And uh my friends came and visited my house. And one of my friends walked into the house and it was kind of awkward, but he just said, wow, okay. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, I don't understand. It's like, it's just like a suburban cookie cutter house. And mm-hmm. um, it was, it was a really weird experience. And um, that's when I started. Just, just the story in my head is that yeah. your friends had like much, what were more well-to-do or had like bigger houses or. Oh no, they, they had smaller houses. Uh, they, oh my, it's the opposite yeah, right yeah right. yeah yep. that they walked one, one one of my friends that I've been, i was living with in in philly mm-hmm. he he walked up my my front lawn and he mm-hmm. just said this is big and i'm like that's a really yeah. weird thing to tell someone the first mm-hmm. time you get to their house mm-hmm. and um uh so i i uh i had them over and um i also never really understood what it was like to be outside of the u.s um mm-hmm. until i met my boyfriend and um, he grew up in, in Belgrade. Uh, he was, I think he was born like two years before Yugoslavia uh, fell mm-hmm. apart. Yep. And um, he was telling me about his, his childhood and everything like that. And um, it's very, it was very strange because he was the first person that I ever really loved more than, than you love yourself. Mm. And um, I, would, I would hear these stories about him growing up. Um, and how difficult it was for his family and um, how much his parents worked and everything mm-hmm. and how hard it was. Um, and it was the first time that I was like, I'm going to work as hard as possible that you never have to experience this again. Mm-hmm. And um, being able to, to provide and stuff like that was, is, is huge. And I think it's um, the thing that, that I'm most proud of in my Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. and i i was i told you i was on the track to be a graphic designer um which in some cases you can do really well but the track that i was at i was like wow like i don't think i'm gonna be able to do this and then uh my aunt (laughs) called me and she was like hey like me somebody do this website (laughs) and i was like i'm not gonna do that (laughs) but okay i'll try so i um I reached out uh, and I, I was like, oh, yeah, I can design it. And then like, I'll just get like a WordPress developer. And then <laughs> and then that guy, the way he did his business is uh, he wanted to see all the wireframes beforehand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was taking a while to like get everything confirmed with the client so that I was like, this is what you're developing. And mm-hmm. uh, by the time I got the, the invoice back from him or the quote, I looked at the number and I was like, I think I can do this. <laughs> because of that whole time that that uh that he had been doing that i was on webflow university learning about all of this oh, stuff uh, <laughs> and um i i i was in school and I, I took html classes and all this kind of stuff um mm-hmm. and i absolutely hated it like i i remember the strong memory of um uh being in this this coding exam and just like 
crying. Like it was so bad. My professor pulled me aside. He's like, what's wrong? I'm like, just, uh, there's one comma and I can't find where it's supposed to be. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I was doing what flew Usually university. it's a semicolon that does you in. <laughs> comma, but yeah, I've been there. Definitely been there. And um, I was, uh, when I first found the, the thing, it was like a YouTube ad. And mm -hmm. um, uh, I actually skipped it the first couple of times because I didn't know what, what it was. And then yeah. by the time I actually saw it, I was like, oh, I'll give it a try. And then started doing all the classes. And I think I just watched them because they were funny. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite parts uh, about our videos. It's just awesome. And yeah. um, so I kept on doing this. And then I... Uh, I realized that I that I absolutely loved it, and um, the whole time I was in school, I I knew something was missing. I didn't know what it was, um, and it was really scary because you're in denial because you you're putting all of this money and time mm. and everything, and like your parents work so hard to send you to school, and then in your senior year, you're like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I I um. I started working for all these these clients through Webflow, and then I started this this podcast and meeting people, and then through that I got a job and like this place <laughs> that I'm in is uh -huh. paid for because I I did that, um, and oh. my my boyfriend lost um, a significant amount of scholarship money, uh, and so I ended up having to to pay for more than mm -hmm. because it it wasn't his fault it just like right. stuff and um and yeah so literally everything that you're looking at right now um was because of that that youtube video that i found <laughs> wow that's uh that's really um i don't even know how to respond to that that's like the the thing that is just i think our team is most proud of is the fact that we can enable people to, um, in many cases, make a living. And, and to your point about kind of what your boyfriend described, there's so many people in the world that have, I would say the majority that have like the drive and motivation and the desire to do amazing, you know, dedicated work and do like craft great things. They just don't have the, um, like they haven't been set up with the ability to do, like some people might not even let's imagine you were somewhere where you saw that YouTube ad, right? Um, and all you had was a mobile phone and you didn't have a laptop mm. uh, to actually like be able to do the kind of work that you were able to do for clients. You have the motivation, you have the knowledge, but you don't have the the right tools to even like take it to the next um, step. And I think most of the world is in that scenario still, you know, like a huge chunk of the population has never been on the internet. Right. Yeah. A huge chunk of the population has doesn't have access to, um, you know, reliable computing, doesn't have access to um, even like basic things we consider so basic and taken for granted, like the ability to get a payment. Right. Mm. You can get a bank account or set up a Venmo account or mail an invoice. Right. Like to many people, like both the knowledge and technology and accessibility and enablement gap that is, you know, like there's such a mismatch between potential and um, uh, how much people can actually be enabled to succeed and make a living, et cetera, that I think we're 
just now scratching the surface on um, bringing that to more more people, but it's still like a tiny fraction of what it could be. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's, and it also hopefully helps us both realize how lucky we are that we even had that opportunity to like be where we are to have that kind of um, uh, be able to harness that creativity and energy to like do something with it. Right. Um, and the thing that I look not to take it into a kind of totally different direction, but um, the thing that is uh, a little sad to me is that the vast majority of people who came over as refugees in my, you know, in my sort of culture in Russian culture to Sacramento, um, they are not as open to creating those opportunities for other people, especially people mm. who don't, right? So any other refugees coming from other countries like Mexico and Haiti and uh, Iran and um, so many, uh, Afghanistan, it was just the, the same thing, the same organization that fought for us to come over from, from Russia um, was advocating for, you know, refugees from, uh, from Afghanistan when everything was collapsing there. And the vast majority of refugees were, uh, you know, who came over in the early nineties, um, in Sacramento were not only not open to that, but were like pretty actively hostile to that idea. Right. Mm. Uh, where, you know, we have enough people in this country and like, um, like people need to get in line and wait and we need to, um, like people need to prove that they have certain degrees that are valuable. Like I was just shocked at, okay, you essentially all of us got the opportunity to be here purely on humanitarian terms. Um, and when it comes to actually like this, when, when it was like everyone was giving to us, right. We had nothing to give in return. And now that there's like some perception of somehow like something is going to be taken for whatever reason, or, um, you know, there's like less to go around because, you know, more people are, would be coming to this country. I was just shocked at the, um, at just the language used by some of the re other refugees that made it here 20 years ago uh, around how, um, like in many cases, like downright xenophobic and racist they sounded in like okay protect this country from other refugees and immigrants um and i think the when more people realize that um so many people in the world if not the majority are um have so many great ideas so much motivation so much capacity and willingness to to work harder than 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 we work um, and and um, not try to do something to help expand that opportunity to others. Uh, that to me is like the most, you know, where I, I start to um, have questions about faith in humanity, right? Mm. Where the, the very people who benefited the most are some of the most closed off to helping others benefit um, because of, I don't know, some perception of, I don't know, like it's a zero sum game or something that if some somebody has something to gain, then I have I have something to lose, um, which is almost never the case. Um, I don't know, I hope more of us take the opportunity to try to lift other people up and help support other people and, you know, 
um, especially something as empowering and as, um, what's the word, dignifying as helping them discover a skill or craft that they can use to build value and build a living for themselves, right? And build safety and build um, the things that they, safety, security, uh, all those things for themselves or their family. Um, and yeah, just the world needs more of that. Um, but it's so, so easy to get into our, our lane of like what's going, what going wrong here uh, in, in our own lives that it's um, easy to lose perspective from how, how much better we have it than the vast, vast majority of the world. Um, who even, you know, most, most people in the world who would like visit your house in suburban Philly or suburban uh, Pennsylvania. That's fine. <laughs> uh, see it as a mansion, right? Yeah. Like, this is um, like extreme comfort, uh, whereas uh, it might not feel that way to most of us, right? Just like growing up with, with that as normal real life. Um, this is just the way things must be everywhere else. So the first time I ever actually got that was, um, uh, when my, my grew up, uh, going to church a lot, uh, mm -hmm. Methodist church. And, mm -hmm. um, we had, uh, refugees from Sudan that, that came and the whole church, um, like pitched in for it, got them clothes, mm -hmm. got them housing. Um, my mom taught him how to drive the dad. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I remember there, they had a kid my age, um, and he came over to our house and we, we turned the corner and uh, pulled into the driveway and he just looked at me in like total disbelief. And he said, you get, you live here. Like <laughs> this yeah. is a house. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not, and like, I'm painting this out. Like it's a ginormous house. It's, it's like a, yeah. a like a suburban house you would see in like an average TV show yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I don't know. It's when you think about that and when you're thinking about all of these, these people, um, do you feel like you're not you're not doing enough or that you'll never catch up or do you is it it's um, it's easy to think that way to get sort of like discouraged that you know it's so hard to change these macro um macro trends like sometimes you're just like yeah we want to help everybody but the the way that you know you kind of jump into these pessimistic thoughts of like how can you possibly help everyone so the the best way I know how right now is trying to do it through um, kind of the empowerment angle we have through Webflow, right? Like how do we get yeah. people in rural Russia to start building a business that maybe initially will only service U.S. clients because those are the folks who can afford or understand the value of like a website or a web application or whatever. But for that person living in Russia, it is a life-changing sort of amount. Like even that first, what might feel like a uh, undervalued amount of work, let's say building a, a website in the course of a week and only getting paid a thousand dollars here might seem completely, um, you know, unsustainable. In in Russia, it is it, like for somebody it could literally be six months of income at mm. a uh, sort of a university qualified type of job historically. Uh, so that is, uh, the best avenue I know how to try to like, um, you know, this of course is not like policy or systemic. There's 
I have no idea how we even try to do that, but like in real people's lives, trying to put more um, tools in their hands so that they can go out and provide value and make a living um, and hopefully find a, um, you know, I always have like this, I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but like a, this tension between should work really have any impact on our sense of like self-worth or, you know, fulfillment, et cetera. Ultimately, you don't want that to be like a key driving uh, force for, you know, when people, there's all these research studies when, when people are closer to the end of their life and they, and they talk about like what's meaningful in their lives. It's always relationships. It's always like mm. how they've helped people, how they helped people um, sort of in a hard situation or they taught them something or, uh, you know, what they think about their kids or neighbors or how they've um, uh, I even saw the other day, uh, people have like a much stronger emotional connection to somebody that they felt that they've helped than somebody that helped them. Um, mm. It just like creates, I, I don't know, I think at a deeper level, there's some sort of like something in human nature that is just very sort of this tribal um, um kind of fulfillment in helping other people, um, right? There's something, maybe there's something, uh, you know, like very physical about that, like in our gene, I don't know. Yeah. But that's where, I forgot kind of where I started, where where I started this thought. Um, but I think that's, that's what really can, uh, oh yeah, like our work, our, identity shouldn't be like wrapped up in work. Right. But I think there's real dignity to let's take, take even sort of capitalism out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. When you kind of go out, I had this experience when the pandemics first started, like you, you go out and you get a piece of wood and you make something with it, but you just feel pride or you feel like you created value from something without having to like take it from somewhere else. Um, and, I, I don't remember which essay I read, but it just really, I was younger, where um, it helped me start thinking about um, helping others or creating value and wealth out of thin air. Um, mm. Because before I was thinking, okay, if I, if I do something and somebody pays me for it, right, that means somebody else didn't get paid for that thing, right? Because like that value somehow was like the zero sum game, right? And then somewhere I heard this example of, look, you have like a broken down car that's uh, uh, sitting in somebody's, uh, you know, front yard and somebody goes and just puts in time to clean up that car. All of a sudden you're like creating more wealth and like what people are willing to, how much value that thing has to them because of the, like the, the passion and energy you're putting into that, right? Like you're just making it more valuable without making something else less valuable, right? Yeah. And, and maybe the the investment there is your time and your energy or whatever. Uh, but that's when I really saw that, like just, uh, or, or started to associate this, when you create something, it just has this like magical feeling. Like I, I made something out of nothing, right? And it's even better when you make something out of nothing that has value to somebody else that solves somebody else's problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you, you know, are making umbrellas and somebody, you can see somebody's life is so much better 
because they're protected from the rain and they're willing to, you know, trade something, whether it's money or something else that is of value to you. It's just a great feeling, right? So that's where, um, you know, we have like formal responsibilities and you have to like pay rent, et cetera. And that's kind of the structure that we live in now societally with um, uh, capitalism and, and whatever. But the, the ability to say like, you can put tools into somebody's hands that um, can help them do what they're actually like interested in and mm-hmm. what they find, um, you know, like the time passes uh, faster when you're like really enjoying what you're doing and you can get paid for it. Um, that is really, really magical. Like very few people get to experience that. I like, I'd be honest, most of the time, I don't even experience that. Right? <laughs> like there's many hard parts of like work that you just don't want to do or whatever. <laughs> but the fact that you can like enable somebody to do that, like when you teach a kid math and um, they now have a lot more th- things in, in their tool belt to go solve other problems. Or when you teach uh, somebody something like web development, right. And they realize that, wow, like they can actually apply themselves to create something like really awesome and make a living from that. That is just magical. Like that's, that's almost a, um, that's the only way, that's the main way I've found that you can start to try to make a difference in that um, sort of in, in the way that the world is not really, not even closely um, economically distributed, et cetera. But it, it feels like we are making somewhat of a difference by putting that ability into more people's hands to to be able to do things that are a value that people will pay them for that makes their life better that helps them afford a better uh, lifestyle and a better living helps them support their family etc and and the thing that is actually gives me conviction that it's the right thing to keep pushing on is that um it is so much harder uh and i've said this before like in, in sort of public talks and stuff it is so much harder for somebody that doesn't speak English uh, to learn things like code, right? Mm. Because almost everything to, to be able to do that, even if they have all the motivation in the world, um, they have another barrier to go mm. like learn English, then try to find um, things that will teach them code in that language, uh, in English, right? Once the, and it's not native to them. So anything we can do to try to lower that barrier so that if somebody for the first time is discovering, you know, a new skill like graphic design or like web design, the fewer barriers they have from from being able to believe that they can actually use that versus it being like this totally abstract thing, um, the, the better, the more chance you have for them having that aha moment of like, okay, now I don't feel like a you know, total imposter here. I can actually do this. Um, I can actually, you know, create this stuff. And then like, it's valuable enough that people will pay me for it. Uh, And that's awesome. That's like such, you know, it just leads to, um, it feels fulfilling that we can, we can have that kind of impact um, on, on people, but it's not nearly enough. Like there's a, I wish there was more that could be done, right? To like equal, equalize the playing field, but it just feels um, to the question you asked, like m- in many ways it can feel overwhelming. Like you want to do more. Yeah. Um, and there's like empirically a lot more that you could do uh, depending on how, how 
courageous and uncomfortable you want to get, right? And most of us don't have that courage myself either, right? There's like fundamentally like 10 times more I can do today uh, to empower more people, but it's just not, um, it would risk more things than I'm willing to risk. And I think that's okay in a sense, but also just gives me conviction that there's a lot more um, that can be done that I'm not doing right now that is in my power to do. To do. I'll, I'll stop talking there. No, no. Even what now William Charco- Now you think about these for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While while you were talking, I, I d- don't apologize because it's it's I, it still doesn't feel real that you're like actually here. <laughs> but um, uh, the the way that I'm I'm hearing it, um, uh, it seems like it's a little hard for you to um, look at at everything that that you've done like everything that you've accomplished all of the people that you've helped it, it seems like when I talk to you about that you redirect it to I'm, I'm not there yet there's so much more that I need to do well I I mean it is it is harder for me to acknowledge like everything always feels broken <laughs> you know <laughs> there's uh haven't done nearly enough but I honestly many times do give myself permission to just celebrate and just recognize like, holy, I'm learning not to say, holy cow. Um, <laughs> holy crap. That's okay. <laughs> There's a, well, no, I just, I just have gotten feedback that some people find it. Um, you know, it's, I would rather not say it. So I'm like uh, teaching okay. myself to avoid that phrase. Um, the, uh, yeah, like, to be honest, sometimes I just am very, very proud of uh, what we've been able to accomplish. And um, especially compared to what my life could have been if I was uh, back in Russia or if um, things didn't work out the way that they did for for me to be able to start this company, et cetera. Um, So yes, I should give myself more... uh, credit than I usually do uh, I think it's just part of the um, that realization that you can always do more um, and maybe it's not a healthy thing to to kind of uh, not celebrate uh, what has been accomplished um, I try to do that but um, yeah it's just I sometimes feel that over celebrating and just uh, kind of thinking that most of the work is done uh, mm. moves a lot of the imperative to keep going. You know, it's it could be easier to um, say, "All right, most of it is behind us. We've we've achieved what we wanted to achieve, and uh, let's go move to a lake house and enjoy life. And, <laughs> you know, let somebody else worry about all all of the." <laughs> scaling challenges but um it just it just kind of feels like a lot is still broken and there's a lot more impact that we could have as a team as a company as a community um that I could have as a person as a leader etc so there's there's two more things (laughs) maybe it's a bit of both yeah 
there's um there's two more things that I wanted to talk to you about before you go and spend time with your family. Um uh the uh the one thing is um listening to you and and processing what you're talking about and trying to relate to you. Um I I think there may be a chance one day for you to have both <laughs> the the um understanding what you've done for for so many people um and also just always being excited about what may happen in the future. I think, I think maybe one day you can have both. Yeah. Honestly, like I, I feel like I, there, there are days where I feel I have that now when I give myself <laughs> to enjoy what's been, um, what's been created and also not get too overwhelmed by like what still needs to be fixed or um, all that. But yeah, I do look forward to, you know, what I what I would like broadly describe as eventual retirement, where <laughs> um, the the company is in. You know, I, one of one of my favorite books of all time is called The Infinite Game, where the entire point of trying to create a company that tries to advance a mission is to make it outlast yourself, right? And mm. eventually having the confidence that um like this is way bigger than specific people um and especially like an individual person or a few individual people and it's now like a movement right you can't it's like too big to fail or uh there's other people who have been trained and like believe in the mission enough and are able to you know hire and attract more more people and like build a community where it just like and partially webflow's community is kind of starting to get there right like mm -hmm. if um uh you know it's just, there's already so so much spirit and energy there that even if webflow is to disappear as a company overnight for whatever reason like literally shuts down all the servers uh disappear somehow <laughs> and everyone who works at webflow like moves to i don't know iceland and starts like a <laughs> some sort of cult that <laughs> the internet i think that there's incredible value in the community like there's still people going to be like helping each other out and even though you can't log in and use it <laughs> people are going to figure out how to um you know make stuff for others and inspire each other etc so it's already getting some of that um like escape velocity right where it's it's a it's a community that is so far beyond just the core product and uh, the company around it, whose mission is to keep improving and building the product. Um, but I do think we're like 1% of where we're going to be 10 years from now, right? It's going to feel probably oh. surreal 10 years from now, looking back, thinking, um, you know, th those are the good days when the community was only hundreds of thousands of people, <laughs> right? Wow. Versus, uh, probably tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions at, at that point, it's going to feel like this was a special time um, where it was like people kind of knew each other and uh, um, which is going to be nostalgic in one sense, but it's also going to be really awesome in a different sense because so many more people are going to have that in many cases, life-changing um, ability to make a living or improve their life or create something that that solves like a key problem for somebody else and makes their life easier um 
and hopefully the the net result is that the world is a better place um so knock on wood this is (laughs) (laughs) speaking of looking back on things the Mm -hmm. the last thing i wanted to bring up with you was um that i i watched that like 50 minute um uh computer programming lecture principle yeah yeah i was listening to a bunch of your old podcasts to Uh um and and you kept on recommending it so i watched it while i did my laundry Mm -hmm. and (laughs) um it was so freaky to listen to that and then see what you've done when when you and i'll link it in the in the notes at the bottom if anybody wants to watch it um but if you look at that and and just where you are in the present moment um how how are you feeling it's it's actually awesome to hear that you had that kind of reaction where you probably weren't surprised at what Webflow ended up being watching that video, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that vi- that talk was so powerful for me. Um, and I know I've mentioned it multiple times, but just for for folks who are new to it, I literally put in. I talked to my boss the next day and said I'm leaving to start Webflow. Um, really? Yeah. Um, wow. I. I saw that like it just randomly came, by the way, this is another piece of random thing. This was like when I used to use Facebook still and somebody had like liked it or shared it and it came across my feed and it was a, just a chance. I I remember it was later in the evening and I wasn't even at home. I was at my, um, would that have been, so this was 2012. It would have been at my wife's, uh, in, so at my in-laws and my wife's mm-hmm. parents were like in the backyard or something. And I already had uh, both my kids. So it was like some sort of, you know, family was hanging out and I was probably on my phone, like scrolling past and somebody, either somebody recommended it or it's, it's one of those like algorithm, some like multiple people liked something. And I started, um, started watching it. And then I remember retreat, like basically moving away from like the so where everybody was hanging out in the backyard and moving to this room that they have that's basically has like a fridge it's basically like a pantry mm-hmm. uh, and uh, well now it's a pantry but it had a bed where one of her brothers uh, was like temporarily sleeping and but he wasn't there so I I went into this bedroom and like for an hour for an hour I was enthralled and like finished watching this video and then I was like who is this person and I <laughs> went to uh, uh his website Brett Victor um he has this uh, website called worrydream.com and read another paper called Magic Inc oh. um, all about visual software creation essentially like how do we like it just had the premise of you can actually um it got me to believe further that you can actually capture a lot of the complexity of software creation in a visual paradigm um, because a lot of the a lot of the times like people will just say hey code is the best approach right because it has the most flexibility and I agree in many cases uh, but you know watch that video read that paper which is long like it's a it's a pretty long um, website that just goes deep into many examples but I think it was I was there by myself for like the next hour and a half um, really <laughs> Honestly, I don't have any other word to describe it as like buzzing, like, you know, butterflies. Uh, It was like a a spark of, uh, not just a spark. It was like the, 
like being electrocuted and having that um, in a positive way, having that feeling just sort of nervously, but excitedly nervously, like shake your uh, <laughs> body to a degree where, where I was, I was just like a ball of energy of like, okay, I need to make this real. I need to make this happen. Um, and as a reminder, I had three other attempts before this, starting in 2005, trying to get some version of Webflow off the ground, but it was always the idea, like the idea didn't so clearly manifest until seeing that talk where it was like a side-by-side visual and code. Um, before it was more of like a configuration driven type of approach, not like a visual approach where you would like, you know, do all these forms and um, it was a lot more like a template based type of thing. Um, but when I saw that video, it was just seriously, what, again, another totally random thing that comes across Facebook that changes your life. Right. Um, and without that, and not only is, did it show it happened to be about something that is very, um, what I was already kind of thinking about, which is like direct manipulation and the, even though it talks about animation or making games or whatever, it wasn't specifically about web design. It was close enough that it's like directly applicable. But the second part of that uh, talk is just so meta. It's not even about the building the thing. It's like, why do you do the work that you do? It's all about this. Where do you find meaning? How do you want to create value? Like, why is, what do you want to like, what your legacy to be? Not like what career track do you want or how much money do you want to make? It's like, what do you want to create? And why is it that you want to do that? Um, that if, if folks here have not, watch that talk it's uh <laughs> potentially life-changing i mean it was for me so um highly highly recommended a- any thoughts on on the time between now and then or is it just too much to even think about you mean now and then when i when i saw that talk or yeah, like if um, you you had an experience then, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you had you had no idea what your life was going to be like. You had no idea how difficult it was going to be, what the mm-hmm. experience was going to be like. Having actually lived it and gone through yeah. all of like the good parts and the bad parts and the parts yeah. where you wanted to give up, like mm-hmm. being in the present moment. What is it like to to be you right now? <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, if I was being lazy and selfish, I'd say, you know, my job's never been harder, right? It's like um, the hardest thing, you know, historically is not building technology. It's building systems and teams of people who build technology, right? Um, For the same reason why it's so hard to, you know, so much easier to govern a home, right? Or have a small group of friends and agree on things. Mm-hmm. rather than having a university or an entire school agree on things, right? You, you start yeah. to like so many different perspectives. And um, so in one way, I could sort of like take the easy path out and say like, hey, it's really quote unquote hard to be me right now because it was so much easier when we were in the very early days, just had this idea and constantly building and talking to users and improving it. Um, but it's also never been more rewarding mm. uh, to see that, you know, you're not creating the product anymore. You're creating, you're empowering the teams and building the teams that build the product um, and seeing things go live and impact 
uh, our community and um, empowering people to a, to a degree that, you know, we're doing 20 times more than we were able to do as a small team. Um, and that is really, really rewarding and fulfilling, right? Like that, that, you know, when I take the time to, to think about um, that kind of impact, it's just really humbling, right? It's just, I'm really, really proud of that. Um, but it's still like, it feels like it, the, I'm the least prepared for the job I have right now than I ever have been. And it's only getting worse. Right. <laughs> and, and that, you know, I hear that from pretty much every founder, uh, and every CEO as you, um, cause it's almost the definition of the job is to figure out things that there's nobody else, uh, to figure out because you're kind of hitting stages of companies or products that, you know, the entire team has never seen before that you haven't seen before. And the, the whole job is to try to figure out that, um, complexity and eventually hire people to sort of hand that over to, et cetera. Um, so that's the sort of more challenging side, but the, the most rewarding one is what I mentioned around, like just seeing the impact, right? People well, like yourself turning around, pointing at your bed and your, you know, up on your wall and saying, this wouldn't be here. Um, if, if you weren't able to, um, kind of practice web design in the way that you do and, and make a living. How can you not be inspired? <laughs> that is just, or proud by that kind of, um, and your story is one of hundreds of thousands, if not millions already. So um, sometimes that's a, you know, I need to spend more time appreciating that. <laughs> And kind of zooming out and seeing um, that in perspective. Um, and sometimes I want to like also selfishly point out to my kids like, hey, look at this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when, when I try to convince them to, you know, wash the dishes or <laughs> whatever. They're like, well, what are you doing? To you can always uh, count on kids to keep you humble. Exactly. That's like the kid in me. It's like, <laughs> let me, let me explain. Uh, my hair is so gray. Yeah. Um, but honestly, just overall, it's just a, a huge privilege to be able to um, kind of luck into what we have and what we are now as like a company and community and product. Um, and the, the most exciting thing, honestly, is that every year it feels like there's even more to do and even mm -hmm. more people to empower and more opportunity. Because like when you have, um, you know, when we just, we just did No Code Conf, right? Where we announced a bunch of things that are coming. And just when people realize the potential things that they can create, the kinds of passion and energy I've seen from people who are just, you know, they went from, not even knowing that it was possible to fully believing in their minds that they can create something that was so far beyond their imagination before that, that, and, and already to the point where they're kind of disappointed that they can't build more because now they're now the, it's, it's almost, I don't know what to compare it to. It's sort of like the only thing that comes to mind right now is like the idea of a four minute mile where mm. a lot of assumed that it wasn't possible, but once somebody broke it, it was like, <laughs> now so much more is possible. 
right? It feels like that kind of thing where, and, and nobody's satisfied until they go lower and lower. <laughs> um, and that's kind of what it feels like now of like this responsibility of the more power we unlock, the more people can imagine doing with it, the more they, the more power they want, right? <laughs> so, so <laughs> like this never ending cycle, but it's also just really exciting because you don't really see the end of it. Um, and there's just so much more to build and so much more to uh, empower people to do that we're literally just scratching the surface. Um, so whatever you imagine and what you've seen from the kind of impact that this community and this product and what people have created with it has had, um, I, I really think we'll look back on this time right now and it'll feel quite quaint um, compared to what it actually ends up being. Almost like the it feels like the space jam days of the internet where people are kind of <laughs> making like these brochure fun sites and like making these flash intros. You're way too young to remember this. <laughs> and it was sort of like a toy. And now it's like how the, a lot of business runs. Right. And even then the internet, literally all of like SaaS software combined is sub 20% of all like mainframes that run you know, banks, et cetera. So it's still like barely getting started. And this is in the US. So not even talking about worldwide, right? Technology and the internet, it's so early that sometimes it's hard to um, keep perspective and, and feel like, okay, this is, uh, this is done. We're, we're barely, barely getting started. Um, so it's, a, it's an exciting time to be alive, honestly. Um, and you know, it's gonna be a lot of hard work to get to get there. Uh, and I don't know if we'll ever get there. It's like this perpetual, like to build an enduring company and enduring um, kind of the change you want to see in the world, it's never going to be done, right. Um, but it is very, very motivating. Sometimes you have to like, zoom out and remember that motivation when things are hard. So uh, this conversation is a good reminder for me to do more of that. We thank you so much for the extra time at the end of this. <laughs> I know we uh, we said too, but it, I, I've been looking forward to this for for months, and I had been preparing for it for like weeks, and it was like everything that I hoped it would be. <laughs> well, I'm glad, and I, <laughs> um, I, uh, I didn't prepare at all so it's not fair <laughs> and you were totally right because I was I was like how can this go for multiple hours <laughs> um, you were totally right and I'm glad I you know left a buffer at the end I would <laughs> super enjoy this conversation Emily you're um I'm I'm glad you are a a member of our community um there's it's a it's actually kind of a rare thing for people to take initiative to like build more community right what you're doing is actually really hard like it takes a lot of um effort and motivation to get people like not even myself right like you've been doing this for a long time right like you have like 40 something episodes already i think um, you're 36 okay so almost 40. <laughs> uh, i would give up on episode number two and say, no or something uh, so kudos to you and uh communities like Webflows wouldn't exist um, without people like you. So just kudos on everything you're doing.
I'm gonna have to process that later because that was really surreal. Um, but, <laughs> but um, the the way that I that I end the podcast is um, I reintroduce myself and I say what I do and where mm-hmm. people can find me. Um, and usually I ask the other person to do that, but I don't think you're a person that needs any introduction. But if you would like to to uh, humor me on this, uh, I think that would be pretty fun. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I'm honored. Uh, it kind of feels surreal for somebody to, to hear that. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, let's do it. All righty. So, uh, so hi, <laughs> my name is Emily Giordano and I am a web designer, web flow developer and UX person. This is my favorite, favorite thing to do. It's, it's so fun. There's, there's anything that you could do under the sun practically. And um, if you, if you're hearing this and, and you want to be my friend or you want to be on the podcast or you have a project that you're interested in, or I don't know, you're looking for a designer to help you out with something, um, you can find me, you can email me at emily, E-M-I-L-Y at greatdesignlead.com. This is the Great Design Lead podcast. I have a little YouTube channel, Great Design Lead, that I review you uh, websites uh, and my reaction you can watch that if you want it's fun um <laughs> i have a uh instagram same thing all of it's in the description um but that that's enough about me um we'll finish up with vlad and then then we'll head out of here <laughs> thanks emily <laughs> um well like i said in the beginning my name is vlad you can find me um actually you know what i i'll be honest i'm not on twitter as much just because of, <laughs> um you know, a roller coaster of a time suck. Uh, but, and I would not want to disappoint anyone by giving out my email because I just uh, have, you know, it would take me such a long time to respond that um, <laughs> let's just say my personal site is webflow.com. I don't <laughs> have a personal site anymore. I let it, um, I sort of felt bad about it. It was uh, from Russia with Vlad.com. Oh, uh, really? to be a blog uh and i think i need to bring it back it's sort of <laughs> you know to, to i build a lot of webflow sites internally but um or just like as practice but i'm sort of embarrassed that i have a personal site uh kind of running a, a company about making websites and applications um but yeah you can find me on twitter uh my handle is at call me vlad I'm l- on there less and it's mostly just a Webflow retweet account at this point. <laughs> but, um, you know, there might be might be times where I'm more active there. And uh, but you should follow people like Emily who have a lot more interesting content uh, and um, are a lot more open to like, <laughs> review a bunch of websites. That's so, so, so fun. Um, but then I would probably get a lot of people mad at me for not <laughs> uh, including my kids who are probably frustrated right now that I'm not walking the dog uh, and they have to uh, but it's a good responsibility for them to learn well I'll, I'll let you uh, go do that and it's been a, a real honor to have you on and I guess this is just goodbye until next time i have one thing to talk to you right after we stop recording um but uh this has been really fun and thank you for everything awesome thank you thank you emily thank you for having me on and goodbye until next time